This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. Maybe seated. Good morning. It's exciting to always get into the Word and to be in the worship service. Uh, I always say it, but I appreciate these fellows up here. They just bless my heart. Uh, you know, you will never be more who you should be, and you'll never be more beautiful than when you are worshiping the Lord, because that's what you were made for. A.W. Tozer said, evangelism is recruiting worshipers. We were made to worship the Lord and bring glory to his name. And uh, I think when we do that, we are just right where we need to be. So be a worshiper. Don't be a watcher. Some of us have been discipled by media. We've been discipled by television especially those who got televisions back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, you were conditioned over the years to sit and watch. Worship is not something done for you. It is something done by you. When we come to gather for worship, we sometimes have the mentality that the person on the platform is the prompter and and you are the audience, or we're the performers, and you're the audience, that's it. And God is out there somewhere prompting us with the Holy Spirit. But that's not how it is. You see, God is the audience, and we are the prompters, and you're the performers. And God, you have to see, say to God, uh, how was my performance today for you? Something to think about. Well, we're on this thing, the next best thing, and I want to tell you that you are the next best thing. And I think the next greater thing will be to get this, oh, well, I guess that won't come up higher that way, will it? There we go. Next best thing is to have your stand at the appropriate height. The next best thing, you are the next best thing. I want you to get that in your head. It isn't where you are, what you're doing. It's who you are. You are the next best thing. You with other believers is what the church and the kingdom is all about. You don't have to wait for the future for the next best thing. But the next best thing begins here, today with you. I want to call your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, a verse I think I referred to four or five months ago, but since nobody even remembers your sermons, it doesn't hurt to bring it up again. Um, somebody says, if a preacher wants to be humbled, let him ask his congregation on Wednesday what he preached on on Sunday, you know. Um, this passage of scripture is, is profound. At first, as you read it, you wonder, well, what does this have to do with the price of rice in China? You know, one of those kind of things. But the more you look into it, the more you see the beauty. It's often quoted at weddings, but originally isn't talking about a wedding as much as it's talking about 
the strength that comes in community. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can be, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Lord, take this word and uh, pour it into our hearts that we might grasp it and uh, build on a solid foundation of it in our own walk with you. For we know, Lord, that truly the best for us is what we discover in this moment for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who is often believed to be Solomon, uh, is talking about the importance of two being together. Even in marriage, we pick this up where when God made man, he looked at him and he said, you know, he's not really good on his own. I better make a woman for him. And so God caused the sleep to fall upon Adam, took from his side one of his ribs, made someone like Adam that Adam could love. Why? Because he needed help. And God thought a woman was the help that a man needs. Now, men don't always think that that's true, but it is. And you need that level of help. You need that, that companionship. But the text here is talking about more than that. Because many of these people were travelers. And if you were out on alone on a wilderness road and somebody came to rob you or attack you, if you were alone, you could easily be overpowered. But if there were two of you, you had strength in numbers. And again, if you were out on a cold night, you laid down on the ground. Two can keep you warm, but one, you are left on your own. What you gain from another person is extremely valuable to you. It's, it's important to your well-being. Nobody can do the Christian walk by themselves. And if you try to be a lone ranger in it, you will not survive. You must have the fellowship of believers. You must have people that you're connected to. Jesus kind of takes this idea of the three strands, you know, like the three chords uh, that uh, Ecclesiastes is alluding to. If you have just one strand, it's easily broken. But you put two and three together, and it's harder to break it. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20 says, Again I say to you, if you agree about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them, but my Father is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. 
When two believers get together, you have Jesus with you. So you've got a threefold cord, a three-strand cord. In other words, you are much stronger to have just two or three than you ever will be on your own. Why? Because you can't do this walk by yourself. One of the most tragic things to happen to people when they try to do Christianity on their own is they don't talk to people about what they're going through or what their struggles are or what their battles are. The result of it is, is they live alone in their sin and in their problems. And Bonhoeffer said, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. James says, confess your sins one to another in order that you may be healed. You need to have people that you can talk to about what you're thinking and what your walk, what your walk is all about. John Wesley, who started small group ministry back in the 18th century of what we call modern day small group ministry, had these little groups that would meet, sometimes at five in the morning. As they'd get together to meet, the leader of the group would be the first to go, and the leader of the group was there to confess his faults and sins before the rest. And they would share and pray for each other, lift each other up. Can you imagine the power of that? You see, we, we live in a bizarre world, and it's getting stranger. We're getting more and more disconnected from people. We no longer have healthy relationships with people. We don't get to build friendships that go beyond much more than a Facebook post half the time. We have to recognize that we need to be known by someone, and someone needs, we need to know another. Not only does someone need to know us, we need to know them and hear what's going on. You see, even years ago, psychologists said that anybody who had one good friend would not have to spend a whole lot of money on counselors. Why do you think the counseling field has boomed? It's because people don't have the kind of friends in which they can share their darkest, deepest secrets and know they're going to be accepted and loved. Yeah. Jesus would say in another place to the disciples, whoever sins you retain, they retain, and whoever sins you remit, they're remitted. What did he mean by that? Did he give us the authority to forgive other people's sins? What he's really talking about is this confessional thing of what he says in this passage, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's saying that when you are there and you hear your brother share the struggle or your sister share her battle, and you hear that and you share with him his love, they experience firsthand the forgiving grace of the love of God in their life. People need that. That's being church. When you have friendships like that, oh, my friend, you won't fail. You will make it. 
When you know you got someone in your life you can talk to, share your battles, your struggles, your victories, your defeats, you've got more than most people ever have. They say if you go through this life and have one, maybe two really good friends, you've achieved more than most people. And that's something. Yet that's the very essence of Christian community. That is the very best thing. I told you months ago that the gospel isn't transferred by television. You can have all the TV ministries you want. And people will get saved if we're listening to things. God's at work in the whole world. I mean, we know this. I've shared with you that people are getting saved in Iran without an evangelist. God is at work. It's not so much the medium, it's the spirit that works. So it's important for us to recognize the significance of, of having that kind of relationships, the solidness of it. It's where we really begin to build the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What makes a body of believers strong enough to endure anything that comes their way? They have laid the foundation of the threefold cord in their ministry. They have built the kind of fellowship and relationships that will survive anything that may come. You must build upon that foundation. You must realize these are the people whom we do life together with. You see, we need a church that will prevail, a church that is unshakable. An unshakable church is people. It's not an organization. It's not a group of board members. It's not uh, headquartered somewhere here on earth. You know, uh, we used to have a thing in our movement where we said our headquarters was in heaven because we only believed in one church, and that was the church that Jesus is building, and, and your only membership role you have is in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I can't vote you in, or I can't vote you out. Great thing is, you can't vote me out either. It's written in heaven. Jesus says, I am building my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church I'm building. It's not an organization. I remember one of our preachers received a phone call from somebody one time. This was back in the 1940s. And the fellow called him up wanting to know, because there's 200 different groups of people who called themselves Church of God. And, and uh he said, uh, when he answered the phone, he said, his name was Boyce Blackwell, they're a great Greek scholar, and he had this kind of nasal voice, and he said, uh, Church of God, and the man says, where's your headquarters? He said, in heaven. He said, oh, I don't want that bunch, I want the bunch headquartered in Cleveland, Tennessee. <laughs> uh, Listen, God is building his church, and it transcends all of the denominations. It doesn't matter what your denominational name tag is. 
It doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what tribe you're a part of. Doesn't matter what color of your skin, red, yellow, black, or white. God says you're all precious in my sight. He is building his church. And his church is built upon this threefold cord where two or more gather together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. Think about that. Think about this. That when you were worshiping, as we came into this place today, we invoked the presence of Jesus to be with us. And that means that Jesus is in the midst of us. He's sitting out there with you as you're worshiping him. This is the church. And that kind of church, nothing can destroy. You can't stop it. They can't pass a law against it. They've tried. The Soviet Union tried to destroy Christianity. They tried to stamp it out, but they couldn't do it. It endured. You can't stop anything like this. It endured in house churches all over across Russia. And the moment that those walls came down in Europe, people recognized that the church and its influence is what really brought it about. Domitian in 96 AD had tried to destroy every Bible there was, but immediately upon his death, the next emperor called for Bibles and a hundred of them were produced. You can't stop it. You just can't. People are afraid of Christianity more than you think. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so antagonistic towards it, right? It's just like the Bible. They say, oh, the Bible's just fairy tales. Who has ever outlawed a fairy tale? I mean, when have we passed laws that said Cinderella, outlawed? Cinderella, you can't read that book. Beauty and the Beast, get it out of here. Who has ever done that? No one has. Why? If it's a fairy tale, it shouldn't hurt. The reason they outlaw is they know it's too powerful. It's too dangerous. It upsets too many political regimes. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, these are those, talking about those early disciples, who have turned the world upside down. Christianity is powerful. The word is powerful. Heaven and earth shall pass away, the scripture says, but my word shall not pass away. Do you grasp that? This thing's going on, people, because we're the most powerful force in the world. Martin Luther said, the kingdom of God exists in the presence or in the midst of its enemies. And he who wants to just dwell with the sweet songs of the, of the faithful and just enjoy that has denied the faith. Luther was pretty heavy. Yeah, he, he didn't mince any words. But Luther was dragged and kidnapped and attacked, and they had people out to kill him. He, he lived that. 
He knew that you weren't going to have a, a good worship service just because you wanted one. You had to stand for truth. And friends, we have to recognize that the church, the kingdom of God and the church, which is a visible representation of the kingdom, has always existed in the midst of its enemies. There have always been enemies to the church. Even when the country you lived in had been Christian, and probably up until the 1970s, you could say predominantly that America was a Christian nation, at least is the way it functioned. But make no mistake about it, we did not exist without enemies. They were there, but they knew they had to hide themselves because Christianity dominated. But they were there. Otherwise, how did we lose this idea of prayer in school and every other thing that has come this way? It's because we were living in the midst of our enemies. They have been enemies of the church within the body of believers. Not that they were necessarily saved, but how many of you know people who have fought the church from within? Oh, my friends, please know that that's the first lesson you must learn when you become a believer. And that is you must get rid of any disillusion that the group you get in with is the most sweet and wonderful and perfect bunch of people you're ever going to find. No, they're not. They're a bunch of losers. They really are. They're a bunch of broken, beat-up people by the world whom Satan has tried to destroy, and they come and get in by just the grace of God and get saved. And most of them start growing in Jesus, but they're not there yet. They're not Jesus yet. And many of them will disappoint you, and they will hurt you, and they will say dumb things, and then there's some wolves in sheep's clothing. You understand what I'm saying? Get rid of the disillusion that you're going to find the perfect church. If it's perfect, get out quick because you'll destroy it. Because you're not so perfect. And if they think they are, they're less than perfect than you are. You must recognize that the church's strength is not derived from your perfection, but from your reliance upon the third who stands among you. Your reliance upon Jesus in your midst. For when you encounter and experience him, you stand by the rock itself. And you grow by Christ. This is what makes you church. The word church is in the Greek, ekklesia. It's a word that originally was used in the Greek language by Roman senators who were called out of all of the regions of Rome into Rome in order to conduct the business of the Roman Empire. And you, my friends, are the ekklesia of God, the church of the living God. You have been called out from wherever it is you live to gather into this place. Why? To deal with the business of God. 
you grasp that? You're not here to sit around and suck your thumbs and be a little, oh, I just want everybody to treat me good because I don't want anybody to hurt my feelings. And I want the world to be nice to me. They're not going to be nice to you. You are here to get charged up and fired up to go out and face those who would stand against you knowing that in Jesus Christ you are more than conquerors. Greater is he who's in me than he who is in the world, the scripture says. We conquer through Jesus Christ. We triumph in him and not the gates of hell can stand against those who gather together and pray and seek the face of God. When two or three of you get together and you start agreeing and praying and seeking God's face my friends the very gates of hell tremble against you and you triumph victoriously over all of the power of the enemy I want to throw something at you that I hadn't planned to share this but I just feel like I need to we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12 if you guys can pull it up great if not you just listen real good Revelation 12. I want you to get this. I'm throwing this in for free. It tells us in Revelation 12 that there was this great woman who appears. She is Zion, Jerusalem who is above, mother mother of us all. She's a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars that symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel and, and the 12 apostles. And she's with child. And the child cries out in labor to be delivered. And this child is Jesus. And then there appears another sign in heaven, just as the woman's to give birth. It's a great red dragon, and his tail sweeps a third of the stars. The red dragon was a symbol that the Roman Empire carried into battle. It was on some of their banners. They had the flying eagle and the great red dragon to strike fear into their enemies. And uh, the Roman Empire oh, really controlled a third of the earth. And so all of those powers that they controlled, they threw to the earth. But the dragon, it says, stood before the woman. This is verse 4. And stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Do you know Herod wanted to know where the child Jesus was born, did he not? And he was sending out people to kill all of the children. You know, from uh, two years and under, he wanted that child destroyed. And it says, and she gave birth, in verse 5, to a son, a male child who's to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Who else could that be but Jesus? And the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God and that she might be nourished for a thousand and two thousand years, so on and so on. And it says there was war in heaven and Michael and his angels were waging war against the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. Neither was a place found for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, this passage just goes right along with Luke chapter 10. You see, in the Old Testament, Satan had access to come to God uh, and accuse us to God. 
Remember the book of Job, where the sons of God became before the throne of the Lord and Satan came too? Didn't you wonder how that happened? I thought nothing bad could be there. But in some strange way, at that point, God permitted Satan to come before him. But when Jesus Christ came, he changed the game. And it says when Jesus sent out the 70, remember I preached that a few months ago, he sent out the 70, and as he did so, they cast out demons, healed the sick, and they came back rejoicing, Lord, even demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said in Luke 10, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Wow. Now this is where it gets good. Listen to what it says. We'll skip down in verse 10. I heard uh, a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down who accuses them before God day and night. Satan could go up and say, Hey, you know about that Steve Carney guy? He's a real jerk. I can tell you things. But guess what? Jesus Christ came. And it changed everything because he died for my sins and your sins so that we could be covered by the blood so that Satan can no longer get us. Now get this, church, because we're talking about an unshakable church. Listen to verse 11. Talking about the devil, the great red dragon, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb because of the word of their testimony and that they did not love life even to this. Wow. They did not love life even to death. Even to death. Listen. When the devil has been cast down, he can't accuse us to God anymore. So you know what he does? He comes down to accuse us to ourselves. He comes to me and says, Steve, you know what you are. You know what you've been, what you've done. You were raised by wolves, man. You're messed up. And I say to him, yeah, and I can tell you things you haven't mentioned, but I am covered by the blood of the Lamb, and you can't touch me. Do you get that? I am covered by the blood of the Lamb, and you can't touch me. That's the word of my testimony. The only thing you can do, devil, is convince somebody to kill me. But if you do, I'm going home to Jesus. You can't mess with me because greater is he who's in me than you are. That's how the church overcame the world. Because of the blood of the young man, of the word of their testimony, and they did not love life even to the point of death. So it says in verse 12, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you who dwell on the earth, because the devil has come down knowing that he has just a short time and he has great wrath. The devil is trying his best but he can't touch this. Feel like MC Hammer. Some of you wouldn't get that, which really makes me feel old. 
it's so important for us to recognize that we, with this threefold cord, stand eternally invincible against the forces of this world. So that should free you. That whenever the Holy Spirit prompts you, and please let the Holy Spirit prompt you, don't go running off your mouth on your own. Let the Holy Spirit prompt you. And if he does, do not hold back from speaking a word for the Lord. Do not refrain from speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not hold back from sharing with your friends the love of Jesus and what he's done for you in your life. Because in the end, we win. We really do. I don't know if you've read this book called Revelation, but if you get over to the end of it, yeah, we win. There it is. In black, red, and white, we win. We win. I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Woohoo! Yeah. I am alive. that would not have made it in this life at all. The chances of me surviving, even living to the age I am, were slim and none. But by a threefold cord, I stand here today. One is not good on his own. I was never good on my own. Two is great, but a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And throw in another one, two or three gather together, and then put Jesus in the middle, that's four. Throw in five or six, and my goodness, what do you have? So let me ask you, where does your faith stand today in Jesus? Are you standing strong? If you don't have a brother or sister in Christ that you can share with, find one. Stand with me, and I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to do some things that will really be proactive in your life. I don't want you to just react. I want you to act. I want you to begin right now, wherever you're at. Well, first of all, I want you to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? How many of you today with heads bowed, eyes closed, say, I, I, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Would you raise your hands? Amen, amen, amen. Yes, yes, yes. How many of you would say, Pastor... I do kind of need that commitment in my life. I've never really made it. Would you pray for me today?
I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand, if you would, if you need to make that commitment. Amen. Anyone else? All right. If you need to make that commitment, I want you to pray this with me right now. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins and to be my Lord and Savior. I want to follow you, Jesus, and I need to not be alone in my life. I'm battling this thing by myself, and it's overwhelmed me. So, Jesus, come into my heart. Fill me with your grace and love. Pray that right now. Pray that. Invite Jesus. Come into my heart. Pray that. Forgive me. Pray that. And then thank him for doing it. Because if you prayed that, he will answer. For if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Now, if you have prayed that prayer and you are a Christian right now, I want you to start praying for the Lord to give you and send a Christian brother or a Christian sister along your path whom you can build a believing relationship with. Maybe you're a husband and wife, and maybe you need another couple to come into your life that you can build a strong relationship with. You need to start praying for that to happen right now. And you need to grow in Jesus. And you need to invoke Jesus to be in the midst of that relationship. Jesus should mediate all of your relationships. Relationship between husband and wife. Husbands, you don't get to go to your wife any way you want to. You, as a believer, must go through Jesus to her. And wife, you must go through Jesus to your husband. And you don't get to treat your children just however you want. Children are a heritage of the Lord. Jesus says, whoever receives one of these little ones receives me. They're sacred. They're holy. And therefore, for you to deal with your children, you need to go through Jesus. He needs to be in there, in that threefold cord. You need to experience the power of Jesus. So pray for God to send those people in your life that you can walk with Jesus through the journeys and the battles and the victories and the struggles. And then pray this one prayer with me that I'm going to be leading you in right now. And that is, I want you to invoke Jesus into your life, into your marriage, into all of your relationships, into your heart and soul. Lord Jesus, I pray right now, you will flood this place with the presence of who you are. You will fill each of our hearts with yourself, Jesus, that we will sense the power of you within us, that you will grow strong within us. You will, will, we will grow to the place where we will hear your voice, we will know your word, we will listen, we will walk, we will think, and we will talk as we walk and think and talk with you. And I pray, O oh, Holy Spirit of the living God, you will flood our marriages 
and you will flood our relationships with our family, and you will send into each of our lives those brothers and sisters that we can walk this journey with, that we might have an unshakable church, for you've given us an unshakable kingdom and an unshakable Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can you say praise the Lord? Can you say hallelujah? Can you say glory to God? Can you say it a little louder? Hallelujah. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's sing. Let's worship the Lord.